Our first reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, and we're going to start at verse 27, reading to verse 54. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, He gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. 
You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I cast on you, from my, womb, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Psalm 22. The message of the cross is both so simple that even the youngest child can understand it, and yet so profound that even the most learned professor can never truly plumb its depths. You can say to a child, Jesus died to take your punishment so that you might go free. 
But when you start to drill down into what exactly it meant for, to say that Jesus died, you soon find yourself swimming in waters that are way out of your depths. What exactly did my Savior endure on the cross? How, how can it be that the immortal dies, as Charles Wesley famously says in one of his hymns? And what did the cross mean for each person of the Trinity? On and on we could go with our questions this morning. The truth is both so simple, and yet the mystery is so profound. Which of course means then that we should never find ourselves thinking to ourselves, I graduated from pondering the cross. I've seen all there is to see. Give me something new, something deeper. No, the cross is central to the Christian life from beginning to end. An infinite well of soul-refreshing water from which we should ever be drawing. And that's precisely what we're going to do together this morning. We're going to fix our gaze on the cross as we look at this psalm, Psalm 22, together. Now I realize as I say that, that Psalm 22 was written something like 1,000 years before Jesus lived. The opening words of the psalm say, don't they, a psalm of David. What exactly in David's life brought about the penning of this psalm, I don't know. But I do know that this psalm was never merely intended to recount David's experience. Because this is so obviously a messianic psalm. A psalm deliberately and pointedly intended to speak of great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Derek Kidner puts it very well in his commentary on the psalms when he writes, No Christian can read this without being vividly confronted with the crucifixion. It was surely unmissable as we read the psalm, especially having read just before it from Matthew chapter 27. The similarities are just so striking. So striking, in fact, that some Bible skeptics insist that this couldn't have been written around 1000 BC. It must have been after Christ's death, they say. It's just not possible, they insist. Well, you can understand why such people would want to say that. And yet it flies so clearly in the face of all manuscript evidence to the contrary. This is a psalm of David that prophetically speaks so movingly of all that our Saviour would endure. C.H. Spurgeon, that Prince of Preachers, puts it like this. He says, this is beyond all others, the psalm of the cross. Before us we have a description both of the darkness and the glory of the cross. The sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall follow. Oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. I can put it no better than the great man. This psalm speaks of Jesus Christ, of God's anointed king. But here we see that the road to his coronation wasn't a straight and smooth path. It was one that would first descend to the depths in weakness and apparent defeats before being raised to the highest of heights in glory and splendor. And so it's my hope and prayer as we come to see all this psalm unfolds this morning that we would be those who are lost in holy wonder, awestruck with thanksgiving and filled with supreme joy. And so with that all said then, let's turn to the psalm itself. It's a psalm of two halves. And so we consider it under two headings together. Firstly, notice, please, the depths of forsakenness. The depths of forsakenness, verses 1 to 21. And there is a real weightiness 
to these first 21 verses. It's heavy stuff. The psalmist is in a desperate situation. It's described in three stages. So first, he's abandoned, verses 1 and 2. You know how you get these stories in the news from time to time of British citizens imprisoned overseas, either in a hostile country or or just taken hostage in some rogue state. Think Terry Waite or Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. Pretty much locked up with the key thrown away, often in solitary confinement. Little to no contact with the outside world. No apparent hope of rescue. Perhaps even unaware of any attempts of rescue. It's hard to imagine what that must be like. Utter abandonment. Utter despair. And that's precisely what verses 1 and 2 describe. Utter abandonment. But not just abandonment by any old person. Abandonment by God himself. And that's the psalmist's subjective experience, this sense that, that God has given him over to his enemies and that he's now a million miles away from him. Hence all the harrowing whys in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? It doesn't make sense to him. He's in utter anguish. And yet, radio silence. Verse 2, he cries out to God in prayer again and again and again. But there is no answer. It's a desperate predicament. But he's not just abandoned by God as though that were not enough. He's also mocked by all. Verses 6 to 8. He describes himself as a worm in verse 6. And now with all due respect to the worm species, that is not meant as a flattering comparison. You know, who wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves, you know what, I would really love to be a worm. They're at the bottom of the food chain, aren't they? They sort of wriggle along this this miserable experience until some bird swoops or some human foot stamps on them. Worms are insignificant and disposable. And that's just the way that this man is treated. He's stamped on again and again by everyone without exception. Look at verse 6, he's scorned by everyone despised by the people. They're kicking a good man while he's down. They hurl their insults. They rub salt into his wounds. They mock him for his faith, no less. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The same Lord, of course, who seems to have abandoned this man. Which is why then they shake their heads in derision in verse 7. How could he have been so foolish to believe in this God? He's abandoned by God. He's mocked by all. And then things go from bad to worse in verses 12 to 18 because he's also abused. Abused to death. This time he's of the bully circle at school. Do you ever have the misfortune of seeing one of those things? Some poor, weak, innocent child picked on by, by the big, muscular lad several years older. Sort of a complete mismatch. All circling around the innocent victim who just has no way out. This man's in the bully circle, right in the middle. Except the bullies encircling around him in our psalm are different animals. The psalmist just keeps mixing his pictures up. So in verse 12, there's strong bulls surrounding him, just waiting to charge. And then there are roaring lions in verse 13, wide open mouths, waiting to devour. By verse 16, there are a pack of dogs, for which think hyena rather than chihuahua. They're just there without restraint. 
And so, of course, there's only one outcome on the cards. That's why we get this dismal picture of extreme weakness painted for us. It's bone-breaking. If you've ever broken a bone, you kind of know what the piercing pain is like, right? Well, imagine breaking all of your bones all at once. And that's verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Unsurprisingly, that's exhausting. His heart's melted. His mouth's like a, like a crumbly, dried-out piece of pottery. He's so parched that he can't speak. His tongue just sticks to the roof of his mouth. In fact, it's so extreme that he's left as good as dead. His bones are on display, verse 17. You could count his ribs. And his abusers seem to enjoy such a sickening spectacle. His clothes are divided amongst his abusers, verse 18. He's not going to need them anymore. And so they divvy them up by casting lots. What a desperate situation this man is in. And yet look how he keeps trusting God throughout. This psalm is beautifully woven together in these first 21 verses. Because after each section of recounting his forsakenness, we have a section where he expresses his trust in God. Forsaken trusting, forsaken trusting, forsaken trusting. And so he holds on to God's past faithfulness in verses 3 to 5. He declares, verse 3, that God is the King of kings, and the Holy One enthroned over all, who therefore can act in any and every situation. And as he draws from the well of past experience, that strengthens his conviction of that. And so he says in verse 4, in you our ancestors put their trust. I suspect he's thinking of that remarkable Red Sea deliverance at this point. But whatever it was, God delivered when they cried out such that their tears of weeping were turned into tears of joy, praising the God who's delivered. And so this psalmist reasons, if he's acted in dark days of the past, he can do the same now, surely. Next, he holds on to God's personal care for him, verses 9 to 11. He pictures God, verse 9, as like the midwife who, who safely delivered him at birth. A God who's been concerned for him, for him right from day dot. Will such a God really forsake him? He trusts the answer must be no. And then finally, he holds on to God's power to deliver. Verses 19 to 21. Power to deliver even at death's door. You know, like Daniel in the lion's den. Or Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. You see, his, his adversaries mocked his trust in God. Back in verse 8, they said God wouldn't deliver him. But even as he's being pulverized to death, Still he trusts his God. He says, verse 20, Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Amid such utter forsakenness, he steadfastly clings in trust to his God. It's a glorious picture. A glorious picture that, that speaks ultimately and powerfully of the Lord Jesus on the cross. I think of what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 27. We saw the bully soldier, a circle of soldiers, didn't we? Spitting on him and, and repeatedly beating his head with a staff. Those we read who, who, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus was abused to death. And the mockery by all was off the charts too. Mocked by soldiers in the praetorium. 
Marked by those who saw him on the cross. As we read in verse 39 of Matthew 27, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Or again in verses 42 and 43, as the chief priests, as the teachers of the law and the elders, they mock him, they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants. For he said, I am the son of God. But then most extraordinarily of all comes verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's at this point I have to confess that I am not even remotely close to having the words to describe the sheer horror of the cross. It's one thing to speak of the awful pain. It's one thing to speak of the abject humiliation. But to find these words on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who can truly understand these things? The one whom from eternity past had enjoyed perfect communion with his Father. The one whom in his incarnation was was the spirit-filled man, God's beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. How, How can he say that God has forsaken him? We can certainly rule some things out. Because it's not that the Trinity has been torn apart. That's impossible. It's not that God as God suffers. God is unchangeable, so therefore cannot suffer. Not God the Father, not God the Spirit, nor God the Son according to his divine nature. But nevertheless, Christ, according to his human nature, experiences such a sense of utter abandonment. He's made a curse for sin. The sin-bearer. And the bearing of that sin brings in his experience such an absence of God's presence to bless. And so he cries out those piercing words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you see the horror of sin? This is what it took. This is what it took for God to save sinners. One of the lies that Satan loves to whisper in our ears is that that sin is not actually that big a deal. Why not be economical with the truth at work? What's the big deal? Why not secretly relish those sex scenes on TV? What's the big deal? Why not gossip unkindly about that church member that annoys you? What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. See the depths of forsakenness that the Lord Jesus plumbed on the cross. He who knew no sin made sin for us. All my greed, all my hate, all my pride, all my lust, all my idleness, all my idolatry, all my slander, all my rage, all my sin of every kind by commission and omission loaded upon my Saviour, bringing him abuse to death, bringing him mockery by all, bringing him abandonment by God. When we think of what our Saviour suffered, how can we sin lightly? One old hymn puts it like this as it ponders the magnitude of the cross. It says, you who think of sin but lightly, 
nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. See the word, the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God. Sin is such a big deal that this is what it means for Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross. Because you see, this isn't a situation that's out of control. The forsakenness that Jesus experiences, it doesn't come because because his abusers have somehow taken God by surprise and, and sneakily gained the upper hand. Did you notice the end of verse 15? Amidst all that his human abusers are inflicting, the psalmist says there, you lay me in the dust of death. Not his abusers, but you, God. Behind the curtain of human history, there is total sovereign control. As Acts chapter 4 tells us, they, as in the abusers, they did what your power and will, God, had decided beforehand should happen. And through the terrors of it all, Jesus then continually trusts the same God to deliver him. As Luke's account of the cross recounts, Jesus says, Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Right to the last breath, he's trusting his Father. And now as we come to our second and final point, we see the glorious fruit of such trust. As we notice, secondly, the deliverance of the nations. Verses 22 to 31. Now, of course, we've been wading through rather deep waters thus far, haven't we? But that's not where we end this morning, because there's a great turning point in this psalm. It seems to me that the hinge on which it turns is the second line of verse 21. Not that you'd notice it in our NIV translation, although I can understand why they've translated it the way they have. More likely, it seems to me, is as the ESV puts it, save me from the mouth of the lion, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You'll forgive me, a football illustration for just a moment. But back in 2013, Watford were playing Leicester in the championship playoffs. This is a especially generous illustration given my, uh, my, my Luton-supporting uh, allegiance. But there was a huge prize at stage back, stake back then, a place in the Premier League. And when the clock ticked over 90 minutes, the score was still 2 all. Suddenly, just as the final whistle was due, Leicester were awarded a penalty. It was agony for the Watford fans. Their season was crumbling before their very eyes, tragically. But the penalty was saved. And then even more extraordinarily, the ball was immediately cleared downfield, controlled by one player, passed to another, crossed into the box, headed across goal, and and fired home by Watford's star striker. All in the space of 19 seconds. From agony to ecstasy. The very moment of utter despair transformed into grounds for great glory. And that's what's going on here. The psalmist's been struggling and struggling. He's been going right through the mill to the point of death, yet trusting in God. And suddenly, as he descends to the lowest point imaginable, when all hope looks lost, boom! At that very moment of despair, you have rescued me. My cries for deliverance have been answered. It's expounded on in verse 24. See what God has done. He's not despised or scorned the sufferings of this person. He's not ultimately hidden his face from him. Instead, he's listened. Listened to his cry for help. All this abject suffering, it's not been in vain. 
God has delivered him. If verses 1 to 21 point us to the cross, then this surely must be pointing us to the empty grave. You see, the cross is this this moment of of apparent defeat. The enemies of Jesus, they seem to have triumphed. They've utterly humiliated him. They've pushed him to the deepest of depths, the agony, the shame of a Roman cross. But God didn't abandon him to the realm of the dead. It's not game over. This moment of, of deepest despair is transformed into a moment of supreme triumph. Suffering leads to glory. From the depths of forsakenness comes the deliverance of the nations. Which means that tears of pain and anguish are transformed then into tears of joy and triumph. In fact, do you notice how verse 24 starts with the word for? Or because? What verse 24 contains is is the the reason for what's described in verses 22 and 23. And what's described there is just one cacophony of praise. People pour out their praise to God for, for, for because he's delivered his suffering servants. So verse 22, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. And the eye of that verse is the suffering servant himself, the one God's delivered from the dead. And he's calling on others to join him in praise. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. It's as though the Lord Jesus is is gathering this great multitude of people into a choir. A choir which sings this great hymn of praise to God for what he's done. With the Lord Jesus himself leading them in singing the praise, holding the conductor's baton. What kind of person is in that choir? Verses 25 and 26 clarify. And they do that by by using a picture from Old Testament times. You see, when someone was in a whole world of trouble, they'd make vows or promises to God. And when deliverance then came, when God answered their prayers, that called for a response. They'd they'd fulfill their vows with with sacrifices, followed by this massive feast. And so verse 25 describes that. It says, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. Old Testament law insisted that that such joy could not be kept to yourself. It was to be celebrated with others. The needy were to be invited in. Which is why verse 26 says, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Who exactly has he got in mind? Well, just read on. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. It's those who realize their needs who don't have a penny in their pockets, who come seeking the Lord in, instead. It's they who join the choir that Christ conducts, his eternal choir, praising the Lord forever. Isn't that just what it means to be a Christian? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, if you're a Christian this morning, you, you didn't have a penny in your pocket to pay the debt that your sins had accrued. Your debt was humongous, as we were thinking with the children, weren't we? You you deserve to bear the weight of forsakenness that Christ endured on the cross. Such are the horrors of your own sin. But don't you see how the depths of his forsakenness lead to your delights? Perhaps sometimes you feel yourself something of the horror of your own sin. Perhaps you worry that, that you might be made to pay the price yourself. 
Could you really enter into eternal glory? One so wretched as you? But look, here are grounds for great assurance this morning that the suffering of the Lord Jesus was not in vain. His deliverance guarantees that we, the needy, will join him at this great banquet. He was forsaken so that you will never be. If you know of greater grounds for praise this morning, I would love to hear what it is. God in Christ Jesus is gathering an innumerable choir of poverty-struck sinners, those who've been accepted because of his abandonment. And actually, this hymn of praise is, is only meant to e- echo ever outwards, further and further afield, even to the very ends of the earth. Have a look at verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Remember back in Genesis 12 how how God promised Abraham that through him and his seed all peoples on the earth would be blessed. Well here is Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, calling for the nations to hear the choir song and to take their own place in the choir, bowing before him, bringing him their praise. Here is news to fan into flame our missionary zeal this morning. One of the things I was always so encouraged by when when I was part of this church was just how world mission-minded you are. Well, don't ever turn back from that if you value what this psalm is saying. We're not just to care about ourselves, nor even just our local community, but keep partnering with gospel workers in other parts of the country, like those at Just Caring Midlands. Keep giving to and praying for missionaries around the world, like like the Newton Webbs in Japan or or those from Slavic Gospel Association. Because our hearts longingly ache, don't they, for what this psalm portrays to be fulfilled. For those from every tribe and tongue and nation to bow before the Lord. And so we seek to play our part in seeking that it would be so. You know, this news doesn't just echo outwards to the ends of the earth. But it also flows downwards from one generation to the next. So verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Posterity is just another word for the next generations. Children and children's children and so on. And they too are coming and serving the Lord. How does it happen? Verse 30 again. People tell them about the Lord. And what message do they proclaim? Well, it's the message of the cross. Verse 31, they speak of Christ's righteousness. His complete sinless perfection lived on our behalf. And they declare that he has done it. As it were, this is an exuberant punch of the air of celebration. It is finished. He, the perfect one, has endured forsakenness at the cross. He took the shame. He bore the wrath so that we can stand forgiven at the cross. Can I ask, is that your testimony this morning? That you stand forgiven at the cross? Have you joined this great choir praising God? You see, you deserve what he endured. You've rebelled against your maker. You've rejected the rightful claim that he has over your life. You've lived just as you pleased instead. And yet if you see what he's done, if you come to him as one who's poor, seeking the Lord, seeking his forgiveness, 
then he promises eternal life, fullness of joy as part of his people. Why delay? Come seeking his forgiveness even now. And for those of us who've already done that, can you see how this calls for proclamation? The baton has been passed down to us in this generation to declare what the Lord has done, both to our children and our children's children, like we're doing in Sunday school this morning, and and I trust in family devotions at home, but also to the nations on our doorsteps all around us. We might not have the words to express the profundity of it, but we can surely speak with joy in its simplicity. He's done this for me. He can do it for you too. Well, from the depths of despair then come the deliverance of the nations. Isn't this a glorious psalm? As Spurgeon rightly said, holy ground on which we should take off our shoes from our feet. Such unspeakable sufferings that bring such unfettered glory. Here is truth to put prayers of thanksgiving on our hearts and songs of praise on our lips. Because as the last words of this psalm declare, he has done it. Let us pray together. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we are amazed again as we see all that our Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. We struggle to understand fully what such things involved. How can these things be? That the Lord Jesus would go through such abandonment and mockery and abuse for us. That he, the sinless one, would be made sin for us. And yet how we praise you for the glorious fruit of his work. How we praise you that he has purchased for himself an innumerable company of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be those who go out and and declare with joy just what he has done. That we would be those who have hearts full of thanksgiving. That we would be those who see that sin is nothing to be taken lightly. That we would live holy lives pleasing to you as we seek to live for your praise, honour and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.